0: the Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. Today, DJ Butler sits down with Tim Powers to discuss his latest novel, My Brother's Keeper, which tells the true story of the Bronte sisters with werewolves. Let's take a listen. Hello, this is uh, DJ
2: Dave Butler. I'm here uh, with the illustrious Tim Powers to talk about his new novel, My Brother's Keeper. It's out now in hardcover and, and in uh, all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free, when you buy them at Bain.com, of course. Tim, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour.
3: Well, thank you. It's good to be back.
2: Fantastic. Um, there's so much to say about this, uh, delightfully dense and chewy book. Um, I, I want to be careful not to go too far in the plot. So I was thinking we kind of talk through the setup and, and, uh, um, some of the details and, and get no further than maybe about, uh, Mrs. Flensing's, uh, first attempt to go, uh, put something in the churchyard. And I think they, that'll probably get us to the end of the, end of the show okay um so uh let me start with a broad question so um this is not the first time what that you have written a fantasy novel where the protagonists are historical people and in fact historical literary figures um true yeah so so tell us about that you've done it before maybe 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 tell us why uh, that's interesting to you, or what are the kinds of stories where where that uh, uh, where that's interesting, and 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 set up a little bit the protagonists of this story. Well, it's almost uh,
3: accidental that several of my books have involved literary characters: um, uh, Christina Rossetti, Byron, uh, and now the Brontes. Uh, What provokes it is I'll be just for entertainment reading biographies and uh, Blackbeard the Pirate. Same thing. Um, uh, Thomas Edison, it happened with. I'll be reading a biography for fun and come across inevitably some enigma or anomaly where a a historical person does something apparently senseless apparently counterproductive, insane. And if I run across two or three of these, I think, well, what if what if that behavior was not senseless and insane? What if that was actually very shrewd if you knew the whole story? Uh, they weren't crazy at all. They were behaving very rationally if you knew the story that never made it into the history books, which... Um, I always decide must be supernatural, um, and then if you apply this kind of paranoid schizophrenic squint to further reading about whatever character it is, inevitably you ha, you almost find confirmation. Ha, uh, you think, boy, it really fits. Uh, maybe maybe they really were worried about ghosts or vampires or werewolves or something um and then i treat it the way a cold detective would cold case detective um i say okay take the actual facts and figure how they conform to this supernatural theory you've come up with so i don't let myself in any way deviate from the history um If history says they were here or talked about that on these dates, I take that as uh, given, uh, mandatory. Uh, So it's not, I insist, accurate to say that I write alternate histories. Uh, Alternate is um, the South won the Civil War of the... uh, the Axis won World War II, uh, Lincoln was never assassinated, things like that, uh, which uh, exist by saying this differs from recorded history. But mine, I always insist, stick as closely as I can to actual
2: history. Yeah. So, So we get the... The Brontes, in particular Emily, but we see uh, we we see uh, all three sisters and and well, all three living sisters uh, and uh, Branwell uh, and and Father Patrick, uh, Emily in particular is your protagonist. So so what uh, what are the the known historical facts in the record that that you're uh, that inspired you to write the story or that you were looking to describe? Well. Um... Of course, I was reading
3: biographies of Emily and Charlotte and Branwell and Anne um, just because they're interesting. Uh, You know, you read Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre and uh, you think, what is this interesting world these people lived in? Um, But then I read that Emily and Branwell, both at different times, were bitten by a rabid dog and uh did not get rabies uh emily cauterized her bite with a hot iron branwell apparently did nothing and uh these were years apart but it's it occurred to me well what if it was the same dog uh in fact what if it wasn't precisely a dog and uh And then there were some odd uh, facts about their daily life, like uh, their father, 80, 70, 80-year-old clergyman, every morning really would uh, fire a pistol over the churchyard. Um, Every morning, regular as clockwork, bang, he fired a gun over the graves. And I thought, well, okay, what was that all about? I mean, he really did do it. Um, and so, as I say, once you get a sort of clue, they begin to kind of cascade. Um, and so I thought, well, look, uh, I think, I think you've got werewolves. I mean, and I can't help it. There yeah. it is in the evidence. And so I concocted a sort of, as I say, cold case detective uh, backstory for it, and I found that their behaviors conformed very smoothly with that. And so it involved um, some of the sources of, uh, say, Wuthering Heights. Um, It turns out their great-great-grandfather really did uh, find a stowaway dark child on a boat from uh, England to Ireland and nobody knew where this child came from. Uh, the sailors wanted to pitch it overboard because they figured it was some kind of devil. And her great-great-grandfather kind of by default wound up adopting the child. And the child went on to ruin the family um, and um, was eventually killed. They don't say how, but I provide an answer. And so all of this together really did kind of provide the skeleton of my story. I, I didn't make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> it's all in the biographies.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the name change, right? From Bronte to Bronte. Uh...
3: Yes, that was real. Uh, uh, the, in Ireland, their name was Bronte. And Patrick, when he came to England as a penniless um, scholar, going to university on charity, um, changed it to Bronte. And everybody assumed that he did that because uh, Admiral Nelson had recently been made Duke of Bronte, which is an island off Italy. Um, But it occurred to me to look up the word Bronte. And it turns out it's the name of one of the three cyclops in greek mythology and i thought okay that's not a coincidence um in fact in all all my research i always tell myself that was not a coincidence where of course in real life it was but um but yeah the very name bronte uh from the cyclops uh which old patrick cannot have been unaware of he was very educated as a divinity student uh, yes, and and very well read in all the classics, and so he would clearly have known that the name Bronte refers just as much to one of the mythological cyclopses as to uh, a title that Admiral Nelson had been given.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting. I think it's it's something like the Thunderer, right? In in, in yes, in, which is an interesting um, thinking about the historical. Uh, you, you know, developing his his uh, preacher's vocation that might have seemed like in a sort of an attractive way to think about himself.
3: Yeah, and um, it develops, of course, that um, the sort of you might say ghost of that dark child who his ancestor adopted and angry about having been murdered and wanting revenge. Comes with him when he goes from Ireland to England. Uh, for the ghost, it's returning because, of course, the child was found on a boat going from England to Ireland. And when young Patrick, penniless and uh, poor and a and, and, uh, thick Irish accent and no connections, finds that he has brought this entity with him to this new unknown land of England um, knows he should uh, take solace in the church, his vocation, but really wants a more immediate sort of protection, a more tangible kind of protection, and so he seeks out uh, an ancient Roman temple to Minerva. Uh, figuring that's uh, more likely to provide immediate, tangible protection. And uh, and in fact, it uh, it turns out to have been a shrewd move. And now, yeah. of course, in real history, that's not mentioned. But it is mentioned that he spent some time after he arrived in England, uh, naive and uh, completely unknown, did spend some time in the immediate vicinity of a genuine old Roman temple to Minerva.
2: So I figured, well, it only would have been a short walk. Who's to say he didn't do it? Yeah, that's fantastic. And then, of course, the Cyclops, and I'm going to come back to this later, the, the Cyclops gets us into uh, a recurring motif of the book, which is sort of unity and duality, things that are twins, things that are split into two, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see that again. Um, I want to comment on uh, the the magic as presented in this in this book because it 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 really delights me. It hits one of my uh, pet peeves on the right side. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, Patrick, you mentioned that he fires a bullet over the churchyard uh, every morning. And um, I won't say anything that's not in the first quarter of the book because I want to not ruin any surprises. But I will. I will say some things about that first bit, right? And and one thing we learned fairly early on is um, well, first of all, uh, there is there there uh, this this is at least reminiscent of actual folk magic practices. One one method for dealing with or keeping ghosts and hostile spirits away that's recorded in writings of of english cunning men and others is to sleep with a loaded pistol under your pillow right so this is this is very this echoes in the real world right but there's a there's another great at least echo of real world kind of folk magic in uh uh in the church bells church oh, bells yeah. to be yeah. very powerful, right if, if you i i, I presume that you probably have read Keith Thomas's "Religion and the Decline of Magic." Um, Actually, I have. I have not. Oh, it's a wonderful book, and then so let me let me let me comment on one of the things that Thomas is, uh, Thomas says, um, and, and it's a it's a, you'd like the book, Tim. It's about how the um, the Reformation, so the removal of the village priest, right? Not like not vicar, but like Catholic priest. Um, practically speaking removed what people saw as their defense against hostile magic it changed Damn their you right. and, and i then, agree with them yeah and then and then they had to have recourse to other kinds of things ah um but th- thomas talks about church bells in there and so for example uh, a a way to uh break a, a coming storm if the storm was brewing you went and you rang the church bell because the church bells and you wouldn't say it was magic you would just say the the church bell you know this is how it works you ring the church bell and it stops the storm right so so um so what's patrick brunty doing firing his pistol over uh, uh uh over the churchyard every morning he's not firing ordinary bullets right what are the right. bullets that he's firing right he um some years
3: earlier genuinely Uh, went and revisited his home in Ireland where this whole business started. And he went to the church where that dangerous dark orphan had uh, been buried uh, inconclusively and stole one of the church bells that had been rung at that preacher's funeral. And uh, he had been advised by an old wise woman in the Irish village. And all this is very, ha, to, not to go on and on, but very accurate. He he really was there then. And uh, so what he does is he regularly scrapes rust off that stolen church bell, mixes it with lead and forms uh, pistol balls, and fires them over the churchyard. Um, in effect, ringing the funeral bell again every morning,, uh, which it, uh, it has a sort of a, a bottom of the brain logic to it, you know, you think, oh yeah, that's that's a good that would probably work., uh, can't hurt. Um And after all, why did he fire the gun every morning over the churchyard?
2: Maybe,, ha, maybe I got it right. Maybe this is it. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful uh, as a real feel of verisimilitude with the sort of analogical reasoning, on the one Uh, hand, and and also this idea that look, uh, things that are sacred are are real. They are just as real as magic. Then they they have power, right? And and so so these sort of they become sort of charms. Um, yeah. The 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 pot is sitting specifically in a bucket in the sacristy, rusting away, right? Yes. Scrape rust out and mold it into bullets when he needs Yeah.
3: It. He he keeps it in the, in the closet there. Um, okay. Yeah. It, uh, it. I guess basically it's uh, what they call sympathetic magic. Uh, like if you want rain, you pour a bucket of water over the patron saint of rain and scientifically this makes no sense but in a kind of subconscious way your brain says well yeah that uh That's worth a try um and of course fantasy stories always work by appealing to that subconscious half of our brains yes so that
2: you say oh yeah
3: mm-hmm, good idea
2: yeah absolutely It's that unseen part the right brain that makes all the millions of connections that we can't focus on yeah one at a time yeah. uh, that there's a there's a, uh, a a casting out scene and it's told in retrospect it's when the former curate was driven out because there's oh, yeah. A, yeah there's a monster under the floor of the church
3: sure.
2: Tell us maybe a bit about that monster, uh, and we'll get to the casting out scene.
3: Well, uh, all along, people have been, uh, especially the pastors, clergymen, uh, have been aware that one stone in the floor of the church has certain markings cut into it, which are Ogham ancient Celtic tree alphabet. Um, But eventually they find out that, I forget, 200 years ago, Uh, a a specific sort of pre-Christian, pre-Roman, pre-Celtic god uh, was twins, sort of like in uh, the Dunwich Horror uh, when uh, the Whiteleys have twins. And uh, one of the twins pretty much resembled a human, the other not so much. And both were killed by... Uh, supernaturally savvy vigilantes and um, one is buried in a sort of mostly dead way that is not dead which can eternal lie Uh, the other in the form of a young boy was supposed to have been killed but a kindly person instead put him on a boat to Ireland figuring that would put him effectively out of the story without having to actually kill what appeared to be a child Uh, But, of course, that turned out to be a bad move because the child came back and the two twins, the one under the church floor and the very lively ghost of um, the one who had been exiled to Ireland. uh, It looks like there's a danger that they may be reunited and
2: the thing under the church floor may pop up. Yeah. So here we get again this kind of the theme of like singles and pairs, right? Cyclops, people with one eye or two, people with two it's, eyes pretending to have one. It's uh, a very uh,
3: important distinction whether you have one eye or both,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll come to St. Hubertus uh, uh, here, here in, uh, before we're done, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, the, in fact, when um, Patrick
3: on his first arrival in England summoned, asked for uh, the armor of the Cyclops from um, Minerva, who of course was the original recipient of the armor of the Cyclops in mythology. Uh, It turns out that he does get, his family does get protection from a one-eyed person. Uh, That benefit of the one-eyed entity turns out to have been um effectively summoned
2: yeah 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 so uh so there's this there's this slab in the floor of the church with agam on it because the because the body of the monster the more obviously monstrous twin right is beneath the stone again all this is act one this is all this yeah. is all set up. yeah um, and
3: the agam writing is the thing's name Paired with a contradiction of its name, yeah. Uh, with the idea that that inscription would help keep the thing down,
2: yeah. And uh, and and in his services, right? So uh, Bronte goes back to the Latin mass, uh, and he he says, you know, the English is probably fine in most places, right? Right. Uh, he's he's saying he's saying the Latin mass, and he slips in some extra words that at one point his right. daughter to ask him about. Yeah, in the
3: midst of the Our Father, Pater Noster, <clears throat> as he recites it every Sunday, there's a extra four or five syllables, which are close enough to a Latin phrase, which is not inappropriate to add to the Our Father. But in ancient Celtic, those five syllables, uh, I forget what they literally mean, something like stay dead right (laughs) stay stay down you are commanded to stay down and it was actually i luckily there's a monastery near us and we're friends with the priests there and uh i was lucky to be able to find an ancient celtic phrase which plausibly if if pronounced as latin Worked as Latin, too. Um, I love finding that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so the parishioners simply say, I don't know why he's bothering to say it in Latin, since we're Protestants. Uh, but he has added this uh, harmless Latin phrase to it. But a speaker of ancient Celtic would say, wait a sec, I know what he just said. And it was no part of the
2: Orthodox our father right right and he's as as he's saying it he rings a, an iron triangle that again is made out of the same bell right
3: right again ringing welsh that's the name of the uh
2: like the uh house. dark boy who
3: uh yeah ruined the brunty family yeah uh yeah it's ringing welsh's funeral bell again which of course old patrick brought from ireland
2: back to his uh church in yorkshire yeah and there's this there's this wonderful tale and it's told it's it's sort of a uh is it 40 years ago or 20 years ago or something it's not 40 it's like 20 years ago when when patrick became the curate right the man he was replacing had oh, wanted yes. to fill in the slab yeah he wanted to get
3: rid of that augum ins- uh, inscription and of course not say any amplified our father
2: Right, uh, and so there's this wonderful description of the parish uh, knowing better than the priest. Often happens, right? We're remembering what what's that is important. Uh, there's a wonderful scene where they ride. They put a guy sitting backwards on a donkey wearing twenty hats, right? Ride him into and then back out of the right. Parish. Which really happened.
3: Uh, Patrick's predecessor really did uh, get kicked out of the parish by a bunch of parishioners, the guy on the donkey with the hats. I mean, that's history. I didn't make that up.
2: Well, that's fantastic.
3: Yeah. Uh, And, of course, you read it and you think, what was that supposed to accomplish? Why 20 hats? Why sitting backward on a donkey riding into church? And of course history provides no explanation. You just say, I don't know, they're Yorkshire peasants. I well, God knows what they're up to. I'm crazy. Yeah, I, well. I, but um but I say no, it was very rational. What they did was very specific and effective. Um but yeah, it, that was another one of those cold case detective clues. I think, well, okay, what the hell was that? Yeah. I think, well I'll, I'll figure out what it was. Yeah, fantastic.
2: <laughs> um okay so we 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 started talking about the one-eyed protectors um we actually get a little bit of scene of the children uh i can't remember eight eight or 12 years earlier um uh and but that but mostly uh it's what 18 through 30 1846 so most kind of starts when emily's 27. um And she's out uh, walking on the moors, and there's a big um, stone feature. And the moors have a real strong presence. You know, there's like standing stones, and it's, it's I mean, it's very Wuthering Heights.
3: It, 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 well, yes, it is. Yeah, my wife and I were able to um, visit Howarth some years ago. And, in fact, on a tour of the Parsonage, um, a guide was taking us from room to room and showing us luck. what. what and at one point, she pointed into a room and said, That green leather couch is the couch Emily died on. And so I let the tour group go ahead and I stepped over a velvet rope and touched that couch. Um, but yeah, it, uh, the moors themselves are, especially amplified by weather and heights, are a very awesome, vast, daunting, desolate. Uh, landscape and that big stone monument uh, uh I forget now what it's called Pondan And uh, Kirk. what is it Pondan Kirk Pondan Kirk that really is there and uh there really is uh, a little cave at the foot of it uh which and there's folklore stories about if a girl climbs into it and then out again through a narrow opening on the far side, she will marry within the year. Yeah. And um so it seemed very likely that the those three Bronte siblings as children would ha, enact a kind of unknowingly enact a kind of pagan summoning ritual in that giant, ancient, primordial, pagan monument.
2: Yeah. And they uh, and and so although they are not supposed to, Patrick believes that they don't. Uh, But in fact, basically, um, basically all of them, uh, maybe uh, see, maybe not uh, Charlotte. Right. Uh, Not Charlotte. But but Anne and Emily and and especially Branwell all see, at at least from that time, Branwell before, these visions of of Welsh of the, the dark. Yeah. When you look closely it, it, dissolves into a murder of crows kind of. Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. They'll see off on the moors on a remote hilltop. What appears to be a little dark boy, which is the form Welsh takes now. Um, And Welsh, of course, is trying to take possession of Branwell and wreak uh, long-overdue vengeance on the Bronte or Bronte family. Um, But luckily, Patrick uh, called on Minerva for her protection when he arrived in England, although later he was being clergyman he was ashamed of having you know sought help from a pagan goddess
2: right so uh so then we get it's the same and it's basically the same place right when when years later uh emily finds uh meets alcuin uh cruzon for the first time uh and uh uh, tell us about that encounter tell us about this character and we learn about the the wolves of of saint hubertus
3: Yes. Uh, Well, for one thing, Emily was always finding and uh, assisting wounded creatures on the moor. She was always bringing home a wounded hawk or uh, some other kind of creature. And so it seemed very natural that she would, uh, finding a badly wounded man right at the foot of Pond and Kirk, would try to help would try to rescue him. Um, it turns out that he is, in effect, an enemy of the Bronte family because he is a member of an ancient semi-monastic order, uh, the Huberti, named after St. Hubert of Lige, yep. uh, who, according to folklore, was a real scourge of uh, werewolves I can't help it there it is it's in history Um, and so even though she has rescued him uh, he really is committed to uh, eradicating uh, this family which is responsible for having brought the Welsh creature back to Yorkshire and made likely again the reuniting of that half of the twins with the one under the church floor and so emily and Alwyn curzon by definition are at odds um though they find themselves having to reluctantly and resentfully cooperate in that they both want The eradication of this plague, which not only threatens Northern England, but for Emily, more personally, threatens her family and specifically her stupid brother. Yeah. Who she loves in spite of him being such an absolute loser.
2: Yeah. So Alcuin's uh, wounded, although as she kind of looks at him and treats him, he sort of seems less wounded by the minute right? He seems to kind yeah. of, we're surprisingly fast. Yeah, he looks fatally torn up
3: as if by some wild animal when she finds him and she says, I'll get help and he says, I won't still be here when you get back. And she's yeah, you will. Maybe dead, but you'll still be here. Yeah. But in fact, when she comes back, he's gone. Uh, yeah. Also, of course, he's wearing an eye patch. Uh, 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 he t- he got a good eye under the eye patch, but he tells her it's uh, a tradition. It's yeah. a it's a token, a formality. Tester. Yeah, it's a formality. It's a, it's a a token of one eyedness, which is a tradition in my order. Although in fact, a hundred, two hundred years ago in my order, the eye patch was necessary because part of the initiation was cutting out one of your eyes. Now it's simply a formality of wearing the eye patch,
2: yeah. And uh, he's very, he's very, uh, he's a very gothic figure, right? I mean, he's this uh, the mysterious man, dark, dark haired <laughs> on the moors.
3: I gotta admit, he owes something to Heathcliff and Mr. Rochester, yeah. He's, he's um, in space, right? It, the, the landscape calls for that figure, <laughs> yeah.
2: Um He's and the other thing he's got is a strange knife. He's not the only one who has one. He has a knife which later we learned to call a Dioscuri. Uh, right. Tell it's about that. Uh,
3: yeah, it's it's a sort of a dagger with two blades in parallel, and uh, again, it's it's traditional. It's uh, it's what we've always done, um, but it turns out to have a very specific reason consisting of two blades in parallel. Uh, Actually, it's kind of uh, parallel to um, double tap if you shoot somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, Makes a more uh, damaging wound. Um, But their adversaries, the creatures who can become werewolves, uh, heal awfully quickly. Uh, They have a Nervous and uh, uh, just sort of altogether anatomical system that heals very rapidly, though it uses up a lot of energy and they're exhausted afterward for a while. But the two-bladed knife, um, by inflicting two injuries very close together, induces kind of um, interference fringes in the healing response and uh so that the response to the one cut interferes with the response to the other one and it's a more lastingly damaging wound for these creatures than simply stabbing it with an ordinary knife um and so uh if you see somebody with one of these Diascurry doubly bladed knives um it's kind of a clue they're savvy to this stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because the knife appears in another context. Listen, let's talk about this other context. Branwell, I mean, in real life, the whole family, one of the sort of verisimilitudinous things here is the way the whole family is sort of doomed, right? It's the, they, they, uh, produce marvelous works of literature and, and die young. Um, Branwell doesn't even produce marvelous works of literature. he He's a bit of a wreck, so right. Tell, tell us about him and then and then and then his trip to London and his associates. yeah here. yeah, Branwell,
3: in real life, um, I couldn't stick to a task. He would write a chapter and a half of a novel and then decide he wanted to be a painter, and he would do some paintings which would not instantly get acclaim, And then he would decide, maybe I'm a writer again. And in fact, maybe I'd be better off drunk today. And um, he kind of was full of potential, uh, genuinely. Uh, he he really was brilliant. Uh, but so uh, unmotivated and lazy and self-indulgent uh, that he never amounted to anything, uh, which was odd because the family... All looked to him, the son, as the likely uh, savior of the family. They all figured he will be a brilliant writer, he or artist or something, and make a fortune and uh, be remembered in history. While we girls, well, maybe we'll write some novels, maybe we'll write Wuthering Heights, maybe we'll write Jane Eyre. Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And of course, it turns out that Branwell came to nothing. And the three sisters have established themselves as uh, landmarks in English language literature. Um, But Branwell, who never knew that his sisters had written these tremendous books, um, but very aware of his own shortcomings, his own failure to manifest his uh potential uh went to london to join to enter uh, the academy of arts had letters of recommendation and money but halfway there got so scared of it that uh well in london got so scared of it that he simply blew all the money on liquor and came home and said i got robbed I, I, I never even got to, uh, people, uh, gangsters, you know, uh, took all my money. Um, but I say that during his uh, time of profligate waste in London, he was approached by members of uh, a group in who, who were in league with Welsh and wanted to revive those twins and bring up the thing from under the church floor. And part of their initiation, what they called their baptism, was to be lightly pricked in the palm by one of those two-bladed knives. Not enough to even draw blood, but yeah. enough to sort of um sort of like licking a battery, uh, give you a bit of a charge. And uh and so he finds himself aligned with the enemies of his family and Alcuin Curzon. It's sort of like Edmund in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sibling who winds up casting his lot with uh, the adversaries. Yeah. In fact, I probably had Edmund in mind when I was yeah. writing Branwell. Um, and so Emily, being loyal to her family uh, wants to help Curzon end the threat of lycanthropy, but also wants to snatch her poor idiot brother out of that alliance he has foolishly formed and save him. Uh, Curzon himself has no regard for her brother, and if, if her brother is a casualty
2: in all this, who cares? And in fact, he seems to expect it, right? Her brother. Oh been- yeah. He he
3: thinks it's inevitable. He he says, I, I promise you, Emily, I will try not to be the one that kills him. Yeah. Um, but she is thinking, I'm with you on all of it, but I I do want to save my poor brother.
2: Yeah. And there's there's uh in fact, she's her brother's keeper. Yeah, there we go. When when Bramwell has this experience, uh And it's in an abandoned church in London, uh, uh, Mrs. Flensing or no, she's got a Reverend there with her. And he, he anoints, uh, Branwell, uh, between the eyes with oil. And Branwell struck that this is like extreme unction. They're referring to it as baptism, but it's. Yeah,
3: that's true. They're saying baptism, but it's really the other end of the scale.
2: Yeah. And, and I love this bit about the knives, right? So, so they, they uh they 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 don't really even draw blood they just kind of poke the palm right. of the hand with the twin bladed knife and the repeated phrase is um uh two blades to confuse location right so there's a there's yeah. like there's like it's an act of magic and empowerment here right we're gonna uh this we're a conspiracy maybe helping us stay secret but but it also means right like it's it's a it's a lovely idea that Alcuin Curzon is armed with the sacramental weapon of his, own, his enemy, right? Yeah, <laughs> well,
3: true, because Curzon's sect, brotherhood, uh, order, were originally uh, part of the werewolf tribe, who, as it were, converted and now work against it, but still always have that uh a tendency inclination possibility of reverting which yeah. is why they wear the eye patch
2: um for yep. reasons explained in the book yeah uh, a later in the book we get into that but it, it makes yeah. them, they're like they're not just enemies they're intimate enemies right they're, right they're born out of the same matrix uh yeah which is fabulous um, uh, so, so Emily goes to, tries to to save Branwell, and and, and we're, we're sort of nearing the I, what I think of as the at the end of Act One. There's this great climax scene. Um, she, Branwell tries to lure Emily in particular. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is Edmund, right? Edmund inviting the yes, oh, the, the witch right. is nice. She gave me Turkish delight. Yes, exactly. Right? Yes. And Branwell says, "Oh, uh, you should meet Mrs. Flencing. She will give you a publishing deal."
3: Yeah, she. Yeah, <laughs> she's 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 got connections with publishers. I know you write your silly little stories, Emily. Yeah. Uh but yeah, she. So yeah, he's definitely betraying his sister, uh manipulating her. By the fact that she loves him and has loyalty to him, yeah. um, which she comes to understand, and uh, cautiously forgives him for it, uh, the way the way you would forgive somebody who
2: you no longer
3: trust, yeah. but you nevertheless
1: forgive
2: yeah it's it's a a very interesting lovely kind of bit of pathos right he 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 sees himself as his own fictional character northangerland who's this kind of a nietzschean figure right he's like
3: yes yes
2: he does what he wants he succeeds everybody admires him yeah and Um, he of
3: course really did write a lot of silly little stories about this northangerland character
2: yeah uh Emily sees him very differently, and she and she's at one point there's in her inner monologue there's this bit where she says, you know, I went out into the world, discovered it wasn't for me, but I'm content where I am because because I get to see the changing seasonal beauty of the moors and I get yeah. to write the poetry and the novels that I want. Right? Yeah. Branwell went out in the world and it broke him, and he's not content with what he is. Right. right? He's a right. pathetic,
3: sad. That- yeah, both of them wind up coming back to the remote uh, home in uh, the Yorkshire Moors having tested themselves against the outside world and decided uh, – Emily decided it's not for me. And as you say, she was completely content with uh, the, the changing seasons, with cooking, with writing, with uh, going on hikes with her dog, etc writing with her sisters that suited her perfectly but yeah branwell didn't so much choose to uh retreat from the world he kind of bounced off at heart with some injury and um even though he wound up back in uh the remote yorkshire parish he was not content there he thought i need fame i need respect admiration um i remember at one point he tells emily it's different for you you're happy doing what i would consider nothing and you don't mind the fact that a hundred years from now nobody will know who emily bronte was but i was born to be famous celebrated uh, admired um so yeah, they uh, it, it, they both wound up in the same situation, but their attitude toward that situation was, uh, in his case, poisonous.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's so, it's such a such an interesting comment on on uh, the human condition, really. Um, yeah, I, I, we we all do know people
3: who have appear to not be doing anything but think – but I'm supposed to be famous. I'm supposed to be rich.
2: Right. <laughs> um. All right. One more. So, so uh, the dog, the, the dog. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the family, but, but really in particular, Emily has a big bull mastiff Keeper, and he's never leashed. She's, he must be huge because she's holding his collar wherever she goes. Right. So he must be like, three feet high at the shoulder or something he's a big dog he was a really big dog
3: um the descriptions of the actual historical keeper um and drawings emily did of him actually in real life uh yes tell you that this was a really really well any bull mastiff is a big damn dog yeah. Uh, but he was a particularly big bull mastiff, and he was very important in Emily's life in actual history um, and to everybody in the family. But he was particularly Emily's companion um, and their great, great, great grandfather back in Ireland, who killed the Welsh creature twin, did have himself a big bull mastiff named keeper. Awesome. Um, I didn't make that up. That's history. And um, so it was very natural to uh, to say that Emily's keeper in 1846 participates to some extent, embodies to some extent, uh, shares its space with that keeper from back in Ireland in 1710. And they both Mastiffs, they both have the same name they both belong to the same family uh how could it not be the case and um and then of course it was very natural to have keeper uh
2: play a substantial active part in the story yeah there's a there's a there's a great moment uh uh again since the theme of like things that are dual in nature right and uh and she good and, point from now on, i'm going to pretend I meant that,
3: that that's I, a good that's a good point some yes, the dog you, the dog is a duality of course
2: the The other Tim Powers meant that uh, <laughs> yeah <so>. yeah as <laughs> of now, I meant it all along <laughs> uh there's this there's there's this great scene where Emily goes to take try and take Branwell back. She goes to meet Flensing and results in shooting. And then suddenly there are two dogs. Yes. It's confused. It's in the snug. It's in like a, the private room. Right. The local pub. And suddenly there are two dogs. And this this fabulous moment. Uh, Mrs. Flensing, the sort of werewolf cultist head, stabs with her dioscuri, her twin yes, blade knife. Right. Yeah. And each dog takes one wound. Yes, Emily says
3: she stabbed him, but I only see one cut. She stabbed him with that double-bladed knife, and then she tells herself, "Oh well, there were two dogs." Yeah, uh, as if that explains it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it uh, it was fun having uh, the sort of ghost of that 200 years ago keeper appear and uh help out yeah.
2: at certain moments and We've then of course of um
3: well not to go past the first quarter of the book
2: yeah uh that's fantastic tim what a what a wonderful uh book i'm so thrilled we published this um is there anything that we sh- that we should say about this that we haven't um uh at this point
3: um <laughs> uh, I don't I don't think of anything I think we've I think we've covered it very adequately
2: um fantastic uh yeah it, it's a lot of fun uh I mean it's it's smart fun it's fun with a lot of depth right it's fun I mean I I didn't realize how many of the things that you uh incorporate in the story uh, it's all true the whole yeah. thing is true yeah. um and
3: as the the fun part of working within history the way I do as opposed to alternate history is you're looking for clues, things that are already there.
2: Yeah.
3: And uh, if you fix on a very rich area, uh, you find an abundance of things that are already there. I mean, there really was Another temple to Minerva, uh, north of the parsonage, there where I describe it. There really was the Roman road that led down to that point. Um, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. You think uh, the story practically is implicit in in the plain recorded history. Ha, you know, I didn't make this stuff up. What What do you make of it? This is what I make of it.
2: Ha that's fantastic well um what are you working on now this is not a story that screams sequel uh, no
3: no i no, it, it yeah. couldn't
2: <laughs> yeah. i mean
3: as of 1848 everybody was dead except charlotte and this is just history uh and she didn't really i mean she wrote a few more books she got married she died Unlike Emily, her story does not uh, provide the kind of uh, drama yeah. that uh, that would call for a book. So, uh, no. What I'm what I'm uh, doing right now involves um, a certain occult weirdnesses going on in Paris in the 1920s
2: that's exciting
3: yeah i'm i'm digging through looking for clues you know like a detective aha uh-huh, what the hell was that all about i know what history says it was but but what was it really or was and it really? and yeah, i always ask myself no no what was it really and that and that those are not a coincidence um and so uh i'm finding out what uh Supernatural stuff was actually going on among that crowd in Paris in the 20s.
2: That's fantastic. But well, I look forward to it. Oh, uh, me too. Me too. Well, I I screwed up. I have to say this. I'm surprised you, and I even talked at the beginning before I turned recording on. I said, okay, I'm going to read your biography. And then I was so excited to talk about the book that <laughs> I didn't. Well, oh, uh, that's all right. <laughs> I'm going to read it now, Uh, 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 just very briefly here as we wind up. Um, uh, Tim Powers is the author of numerous novels, including numerous of my favorite novels, Tim, including Hide Me Among the Graves, Three Days to Never, Declare, Last Call, and On Stranger Tides, which inspired the feature film Pirates of the Caribbean, On Stranger Tides. He's won the Philip K. Dick Memorial Award twice and the World Fantasy Award a whopping three times. He lives in San Bernardino, California. Uh, Tim Powers, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Oh, thank you. It's been fun. Always is fun.
1: And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, Pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss.
0: The cookouts were held in the wooded grove next to the observatory, handy to the dormitory kitchen. True to form, the picnic tables looked overcrowded with food, and the smoke from the charcoal grills, scented with the smell of cooking meat, drifted out into the parking lot. Oil Can's hover bike sat on the grass beside the lot, almost as comforting a sight as Oil Can himself. Nathan parked his Buick and they got out. I'm going to have to go soon. Nathan scanned over the picnicking scientists, as if making sure none of them were the missing smugglers. My shift starts in half an hour. Make sure Lane locks her doors tonight. If you need a ride home tomorrow, call me. Sure. Tinker was never sure how to take Nathan's protective streak. Thanks for the ride. Anytime. He turned to her with the start of a smile, which vanished with a look of surprise. Tink. He reached out to button the bottom of her shirt closed. Please try to stay decent. What? She brushed away his hand and gave her middle button a slight tug. You can't see anything important with this one done. Besides, I've got a bra on. I know he said in an oddly husky voice. It's a very sexy bra. You checked it out? She would have been embarrassed except for the fact that he beat her to the blush. Weird seeing such a big guy turn red and knowing she had done it to him. Empowering. She tugged on the middle button again, flashing a bit of her bra's black lace. Like what you saw? Tink. He caught her hand with his. Don't tease guys like that. The wrong guy will get the wrong idea. It's just you. I'll take that as a compliment. He surprised her by running his finger across her bare skin, just above the middle button, a glide of rough fingertip over the upper swell of her right breast. And yes, I liked what I saw. Her turn to burn. You're just being nice. She frowned when he laughed. What? What? It's just you're so smart, and yet you're so naive, innocent. What do you mean by that? He looked up at the sky for a minute, and then gave her a look like a boy caught stealing candy. Guilty, but wanting so badly to get away with it. You were just this skinny little kid until you turned about 15, and then, one day I turned around and you were suddenly so drop-dead sexy. She laughed out of total surprise. Me? You bloomed that year. In plain English, she got breasts that year. Well, yeah, but sexy? Yes, I've been quietly obsessed with you since then. You've got a funny way of showing it. You've never laid a hand on me. You were 15 and I was 25. I kept my hands to myself. I would bust any guy for doing what I was thinking. Big brother Nathan thought she was sexy? She couldn't believe it. Yeah, sure. That's always been the worst of it. You've never been aware of how sexy you are. Like the way you eat strawberries. What's wrong with the way I eat strawberries? He opened his mouth and then thought better of explaining. Nothing. Just forget it. Come on. Tell me. You don't eat them. You make love to them. It's such a turn-on I need a cold shower afterward. You get off watching me eat? See? He shook a finger at her. You're innocent. You don't understand. And I do. I'm older and. If you say wiser, I'm going to smack you. He held up his hands to ward off any blow. Hey, when it comes to brains, you're clearly way ahead of me. I've never minded. This isn't about you, it's about me. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I thought I was taking advantage of a kid. So, I'm a legal adult now. Hell, you just turned 18 and never been kissed, and you still look young enough to be 16. I'm 28. Tinker studied him, trying to reevaluate the last three years. How had she missed his obsession? Certainly, he spent an inordinate amount of time with her and oil can, but he'd also had two or three girlfriends that she could remember. Yeah, you're 28 and definitely more experienced than me. That doesn't seem fair. You get to screw around while I stay a virgin. He kicked at a weed growing up in a crack in the parking lot cement. I thought if I found someone else, I'd stop having a thing for you. It really hasn't been fun, wanting you and feeling like a filthy old man at the same time. You know, you are always going to be ten years older than me there's nothing I can do about it. I figured that when you hit 19, if I was still hooked on you, that was old enough. Was he serious about this? It was weird to think he had waited three years already for her to grow up, and planned to wait another year. Certainly at 15, she could have cared less about men. But in the last three years, she had developed definite interest. Most guys she knew were like Johnny, too slimy to consider, But Nathan Chernowski? She trusted him. Everything inside her went suddenly, nervously a quiver. She looked at his mouth and wondered what it would be like to kiss him. What am I supposed to do for the next 11 months? Sit and twiddle my thumbs until you feel righteous? He glanced at her, squinting in speculation. You'll probably hit me if I say that would be nice. Yes, she growled. Eleven months of wondering would kill her. She was too used to satisfying her curiosity to wait that long. Why don't we compromise? It would be stupid to spend the next eleven months waiting, only to find out we can't stand each other in more than a good friend way. We should try a date. A date? You know, go out to eat, see a movie, go to the fair. Date. That is, if your ego can stand being seen with me... And whatever people might think of you. Ouch. That's really it, isn't it? You're afraid that people will think you're as nasty as the guys you bust for molesting little kids. Okay, yes. You look younger than you are, and anyone who doesn't know how much you've got going on upstairs will see me as some kind of pervert. And that bugs me. I can look older. If I put some makeup on and some nice clothes, I can look 20. Or at least Lane said so. Especially in a dark restaurant. A pleased grin spread across his face. You really want to go out to eat with me? I've watched you eat. What I actually want is to find out what it's like to kiss you. But I figured I'd scare you off if I told you that. The smile vanished to a look of such intensity it seemed to solidify the air between them, making it impossible to breathe. Oh, my. He's totally serious about being gaga about me. With infinite slowness, he leaned down and kissed her. His big hands caught her hips, pulled her to him, and then held her tightly. Her hands were momentarily pinned between them, and then they slid up, searching for some place to go. She'd never realized how tall he was or imagined how solid he would feel. He nuzzled down her neck and kissed her where her shirt gaped open, exposing the top curve of her breasts. She clung to him, feeling suddenly small in his embrace, unsure if she wanted him to stop or go on. He stopped, though, kissing her more chastely on the cheek, and then just held her. I think any place we go, he whispered huskily, should be brightly lit, with very little privacy. Possibly that would be a good idea. Possibly. He sighed. "'I need to work tomorrow night. "'Wanna say Friday? "'We could do the fair.' "'Friday at the fair would be good.' They kissed again, and she discovered that by knowing what to expect, the experience was even more enjoyable. She waved as he drove away, feeling slightly silly doing so. Kids waved. What she really wanted was to pull him back and explore further, only more slowly.' After he was out of sight, she pressed her hand to her mouth, capturing again the warmth and pressure. Nathan Trunowski is in love with me. Would wonders never end?
1: That was another installment in Wynne Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Tim Powers, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.